Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. My name is Cody, and I'm discussing the film Arrival with my friend here, Joseph Cox. Joseph Cox is a filmmaker. His production company is Average Joe Films. He has a uh, new web series you can uh, actually check out on YouTube right now called Ground Rules for Living with Your Ex. Um, and, uh, and, and you actually had a, you have a film as well that... Um, was it won the 48-hour film? Well, you should explain that. So, uh, this past summer, I actually entered the 48-hour film project, which is a huge film project where you have two days to make a film from scratch. It has to be seven minutes or less, and it's over 70 cities around the world compete. And uh, I entered for Cincinnati this past year, and with uh, our film, The Windows Are Always Clean in Portland, uh, we won Cincinnati, and we'll be representing Cincinnati at uh, Filmapalooza in Paris next year against 76 other cities. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And now with Filmapalooza, is it the top ten entries? Yeah, so the top ten entries from Filmapalooza actually go on to Cannes Film Festival. Okay, that's pretty awesome. And actually, I've seen that film, the the, the, the Portland film, the, the the windows are always clean in Portland? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, and it's kind of amazing you just did put that together in 48 hours. I could not have done that without my producer, John Newkirk. He yeah. uh, really pulled together an amazing team. I was uh, going to do what I'd done in previous years, and that was uh, you know throw together... You know, a group of like 10 friends, and he uh, ended up getting me a crew of over 20 people. And I had an amazing director of photography, uh, Christopher J. Hagen. That guy is off the hook. Uh, I could not have created the look of that film without him. And, uh, you know, my editors, I, I did very little on that film. I wrote it and directed, but like, I did very little as far as the production of that film. Uh, and our special effects guy, Jack, like, you know, it's just, it was an amazing team. Yeah. Now with the special effects, now that, that was that were those were those computer effects or were those practical effects? Or? So they were actually uh, it, was, it was visual effects. Uh, I said special effects, but it's visual effects. Uh, Jack Wiley is a visual effects artist who did it all uh, on computer. And so when I sent him the script the night before, which was an entirely different script than what we ended up doing, he started designing like a UFO type device. Uh-huh. And sent me like renderings of it really early on, like within an hour or two of me sending him the script, and then uh, we ended up changing the script entirely, and it became a weather machine. Yeah, <laughs> in the final version. That's really cool. So now, now what were the were the effects part of the forty eight hours that had to be done? Yes. So wow. we we had to, Jack was literally working for two days on uh, visual effects with us uh, while we were filming. He was wow. rendering effects that he didn't even have real footage other than like screen grabs and photos as we were filming. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. It, we shot the whole thing in 12 hours on that Saturday. So I wrote it Friday night. We started at 7 a.m. on Saturday and we filmed till 7 p.m. Uh, Saturday night. And then we started doing uh, ADR, which is voiceover recording uh, for some scenes. And then <clears throat> then we edited all night uh, and into Sunday. And then by Sunday at 4 p.m. we had picture lock, which was actually about two hours before deadline. Wow. So now, now how did you get involved in, in filmmaking? So I, uh, I started making films in high school when I was homeschooled. I had a lot of spare time and all my friends were at school, so I started learning how to do stuff. Yeah. Thought I knew everything, and then I went to film school and found out I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I went to film school at Cincinnati State, and I uh, had a lot of great mentors and professors who pushed me along. And... Uh, I uh, really found I had a knack for communication and not quite a knack for storytelling, so I learned how to become a better storyteller and uh, found ways to you know, uh, tell the stories I wanted to tell and make the kind of movies I wanted to see being made. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that's, that's, so that, that's actually kind of... I, I stole um, uh, something from Gandhi. So when I started the podcast, 
um, I, I stole this uh, be the change you want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to be the podcast I want to see in the world. So I think that's sort of what you're doing with filmmaking. Is yeah, absolutely, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I just like I have a weird sense of humor, and I know there are other people out there who have a weird sense of humor too. So uh, my comedies are very uh, an acquired taste. So now I'm dabbling in kind of dramatic filmmaking and stuff like that. Uh, to see what I can pull up. We're actually getting ready to start production uh, this coming weekend on a like science fiction noir. Oh, film. nice! So Blade Runner esque. Uh, uh, yeah, there will be some nods to Blade Runner, <clears throat> some nods to uh, Casablanca and old, you know, thirties, uh, forties, and fifties films <clears throat> that uh, we've known and loved and grown up on. Sure. And... You're getting on that spaceship, Zarni Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. So <laughs> the film we're talking about is Arrival. Uh, it was made uh, pretty recently, 2016. And uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this French-Canadian director's name, uh, Denis Villeneuve. Yes, Denis Villeneuve, one of my favorite modern directors. He also did Prisoners a few years ago, and just did the new Blade Runner film. Yeah. And now, no, so this film actually did, did pretty well in Oscar season for a science fiction-related <laughs> film. It, it was nominated for eight Oscars, and it actually won more, only one for sound editing. Yes, and that was well-deserved. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, and it's it's it was kind of impressive to see a science fiction film break into uh, break into the Academy Awards like that. It was actually my I think it was my favorite uh, film for the best film category last year, along with La La Land, uh, as basic and white as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I I actually thought Arrival was the most original film that was up there uh, during the Oscars last year. To be honest, yeah. So so now. I'll give in, go into just a little bit of discussion of the cast, and I've got a very sh- brief plot outline. Um, so this film stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Amy Adams plays a, a linguistics professor named Louise Banks. Uh, Jeremy Renner, a uh, fellow... So he was in Avengers as the... Um, um, Hawkeye? Yes, that's Kind Hawkeye. of more, more famously. Um, he plays a physicist. Forrest Whitaker is an army fellow, or military guy, Colonel G.T. Weber. And the basic plot outline is that Amy Adams, Louise Banks, is a linguistics professor. During a class, she learns that some unidentified flying objects have landed on Earth. The world reacts to this news, mostly with panic, as one might expect. She's asked by Forrest Whitaker's character, Colonel Weber, to translate an audio recording of one of the aliens and is brought to the site of a UFO landing with Ian Donnelly, uh, Jeremy Renner's character, who's a physicist, as I'd mentioned. Uh, she's brought into the shell, which is what they call it, uh, the, uh, the UFO, where she seeks to communicate through a written uh, language because uh, they're not having a lot of luck with the verbal forms. Uh, the, the big conflict in the film is that there's this misunderstanding uh, that occurs which causes the major world governments to suspect the aliens are hostile, uh, but Amy Adams' character, Louise Banks, cracks the code with information she, quote, remembers from the future. Uh, so the, the basic idea is uh, in this is that as she's learning their language, they don't see time in a oh, linear spoiler fashion. Warning. Yeah, I, there's always spoilers. There's always spoilers. spoilers. There's always spoilers in this. So, um, so yeah, she, she she so she remembers this information from the future because as she's learning their language, she um, she begins to think the way that they do. They don't see time in a linear fashion. They're aware of past, present, and future sort of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so something she remembers from the future <laughs> helps her to crack the code and, uh, and uh, sort of save the day, so to speak. Um, now, maybe just very broadly, w- w- what did you think about the film? Uh, first off, I love the film because I feel like it's one of the most original uh, takes on sci-fi we've seen in a long time. There are a few you know, nice little nods to like 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's a, when, specifically when she's uh, being you know, transported from her house to the site. Um, 
I love the overpowering sound as she's overwhelmed. The sound overwhelms us, and yeah. we can hardly hear the dialogue anymore because she can hardly hear the you know what's being said to her, and she can hardly take in what's happening. And um, so the slow, these slow you know camera follows you know through tunnels and stuff. It just it reminds me exactly of two thousand one Space Odyssey, that kind of moment where you you know see something you've never seen before and. You know, the audience is actually taken on a ride with her specifically through her lens, and um, but it, you know the, this film is doing something sci-fi hasn't done in a long time, and that's a maze, <laughs> and uh, make you think. So that's one of the things I actually appreciated about this story was that she kind of you know sorry Denis Villeneuve kind of uses that slow storytelling style in a Kubrick-esque fashion to bring a modern sci-fi story to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I, was, I wasn't totally sure how I was going to, to feel about it because it was one of those films I heard different things about. Heard some people say it was great. Heard some people say, oh, it was terrible. It was kind of like Contact in a way, I think. Mm-hmm. Or some people just were expecting something different, maybe, <laughs> from, from a science fiction oh, yeah. film. I went in expecting something entirely different. I did not expect to love it. Yeah, I mm-hmm. expected to be like, yeah, it's a sci-fi film. Yeah, And then... Uh, my wife actually is the one who recommended it. She went and saw it with some friends, and she said, Joe, you are going to love this movie. Yeah. It's totally the type of film you would like. Sure. Well, it really grabbed me, too, because I was sort of in a place where as I was watching it, I kind of had to keep getting up and doing different things, and every time I had to pause it, I was like, oh, gosh, I need to figure out what's going on here. <laughs> so it was kind of tough to do it. Um, so this film did, did win a, an Oscar for, for sound editing, sound design. Um, what did you think of the score? The score by Johan Johansson is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the f- when they're seeing the pods for the first time, the you know this little sh- I don't even know what instrument he's using there, but it sounds so foreign mm-hmm. and it's like totally unsettling. It's kind of got the vibrato kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That, it's like I don't even know what that was, and he's leaving it in Discord, and it's it's just phenomenal. I really like the film a lot. Um, th- there, there's some really interesting themes that are there uh, philosophically, and um, there are. Maybe I'll talk quickly just as we're sort of talking about the film overall and how we sort of how it affected us. I will say there's a few things that I didn't necessarily like. One thing was um, I felt like it kind of went overboard in their characterization sometimes in ways that felt sort of inauthentic. Um, so, for example, when she's trying to get the gig to help trans- you know, translate the alien language, <laughs> they're thinking about somebody else, and she says, "Well, ask him what Sanskrit for war is." And it was just a sort of this strange thing where I don't know I didn't it didn't feel like something that somebody would say <laughs> and then like so they ask him and he I think he says it's a, a disagreement and she says no it's actually a desire for more cows it's like that was supposed to be the thing that they, yeah, they decided to hire her for that was a little but, yeah that, that's a really minor flaw but it's kind of funny I don't know well but I felt like it's one of yeah. those things where sometimes in films they try to show you that this person is like really smart or an expert. They do it in a way that they try to take a shortcut, I think, to do it, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't feel very true to life. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I get it, though. Sometimes we have to suspend a little bit of reality in Hollywood, and that's, that's where I differ from the guys from, like, CinemaSins, and, like, uh, you know, who's, like, he nitpicks every little detail, and I, I look at it, sometimes we have to suspend disbelief a little bit, because sometimes it takes a little bit, a little tidbit like that to advance the story compared to doing a 20-minute subplot about why, you know, why is she credible? Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes we have to forgive those little things because you have to tell a movie, you know, a story in two hours. It's like... You do. You know. I think there's a distinction between showing and telling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that one, that was them trying to show as opposed to tell. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a little clumsy. And I think a similar thing was where, when she meets Jeremy Renner's character 
and um, she talks. She says something about the uh, language being the foundation of civilization. And uh, oh no, no, she doesn't say that. He's reading from her book, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, it's really, it's, it's really brilliant, except it's wrong because language isn't the foundation of civilization. Science is." Yeah, and he's and... a physicist, so like, it, it, it's a really <laughs> clunky setup. Oh yeah, to distinguish their personalities well, and their approaches. And I thought that, that I actually wrote down that specific line because I uh, specifically. You can't have, you know, science and math, you can't understand that without language. Yeah. Without language, you can't communicate science and math. So yeah. they actually have to, you know, hold hands and be together, which I thought was one of the interesting themes and connections in this film specifically is there's very much this sense of, you know, science versus language and, you know, science versus the supernatural. You know, what can we explain versus, you know, when what we can explain comes against what we can't explain. Sure. Um, and those two worlds collide, and even in the spoiler alert romance between them, we see that we see two people who are have completely different backgrounds, and they come together. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big overarching themes of this is that coming together from two sides. Yeah, and, and I, I, that's definitely a theme I see there. I don't think they explore it as explicitly as they might suggest mm-hmm. they're going to, but it does come up as sort of you know art versus science or reason versus intuition. Um, and you know, but ultimately they do have to work together, and it, it's sometimes it's a little unclear to me exactly what he's bringing to the table from his background as I'm watching it, mm-hmm. though. But they do somehow manage to work together, and that's supposed to point to this idea that we're supposed to make reason and intuition right. work together. I, I think specifically with or him, mystery and, and you know. the story's told through Louise's eyes, and you know we're supposed to assume that you know he has a similar background in some kind, but in his field of study, and mm-hmm. he's been brought into this adventure the same way she has, and she's just. But I love that we don't explore him much more because the story is a whole lot more effective through Louise's eyes than mm-hmm. us going through you know multiple storylines and multiple characters. Because um, I, I found in science fiction, especially, stories work the best when we you know take a it's a, we do the fish out of water approach. We you know we as an audience learn about this new world and all these new sciences and all these new scary things through the eyes of someone else who's experiencing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. When we step into a world and it's it's just explained to us, we don't really understand it. We don't get the awe. Mm-hmm. But when we step into a world where the character we're watching this world, you know, the character we're connecting with is experiencing this all for the first time we feel like we're experiencing it for the first time because humans are very you know connected people mm-hmm. you know connected creatures and uh you know we we relate to each other with empathy mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we have empathy for characters that you know don't even exist and yeah. that's one of the things that's magical about movies specifically is that we can project ourselves into a character that doesn't exist yeah <laughs> that's so cool yeah. and that may and that may also be entirely different from us yeah, exactly. I mean, they may be entirely different personalities, but, you know, we we can find the aspects that we relate to them. Sure. And, you know, we project ourselves with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought that was an interesting thing, though, is that uh, they connect, you know, um, or they have similar backgrounds. Not, not similar backgrounds in the sense that, uh, you know, they have different, similar studies, but that they're both being immersed into this world, mm-hmm. specifically, but they're two opposites. Yeah. Well, and, and so, um, kind of focusing a little bit on, on, there's all these different themes we, we could talk about, but maybe I'll, I'll try to go in some sort of logical way here, in the linear fashion, so to speak. <laughs> um, <clears throat> one of the themes that I think comes up a lot, obviously, is going to be language. Mm-hmm. Um, this notion that how we choose to think and communicate shapes what we believe, uh, which is um, 
somewhat controversial in language theory and linguistics, but but I think generally accepted to, to some extent or another. Although I think where they go in the film is maybe more of an extrapolation of that, and maybe moving into pseudoscience a little bit. Where um, so basically the way that these these creatures think is they they. Um, because they, they sort of think in a more circular, cyclical kind of fashion, mm-hmm. they're able to perceive past, present, and future. Yeah. And so that's, that's a pretty strong, I think, the, well, um, uh, moving to an extreme, I guess, from, from this notion that the way, we, the way we think through our language forms affects mm-hmm. what we think. Um, but th- th- they do specifically talk, I think it comes into play specifically with how the nations of the world um, choose to interpret certain things the aliens are saying to them yeah. this notion that in the film that when if all i gave you was a hammer everything would look like a nail oh, i love that i specifically <clears throat> love that part because uh when it comes to one of the things i love uh about this movie specifically is that we have no idea of these aliens intentions so you know the way they approach it is this whole concept of uh you know they assume that they will react like humans do yeah. Because we're so used to reacting, uh, you know, aggressively or, you know, anticipating human humanity that when a being who isn't human arrives, you know, how do we react to it? We assume, is it going to be aggressive? We assume because, uh, you know, it's playing us against each other, you know. I, I love that because we make we make automatic assumptions. And I, and I look at it the from a Christian perspective specifically. I look at it as the way, you know, we presume God is going to act like we do. Mm-hmm. We, pre- we project our morality onto God. And uh, in, in this story, a lot of ways, I look at the aliens, they're like a deity in a lot of ways. Because they, you know, they, they kind of, they see everything at once. And that's, I thought it's a really cool um, way to look at, like, the way God looks at humanity. Mm-hmm. Because he can see the past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, that comes into the overlying theme later, you know, of choosing life. Um, you know, choosing to create people even though he knows we're going to fall. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's kind of a really, uh, for a universalist film, there's a lot of themes of Christianity in that, actually. Yeah, th- there are, there's a few things that, that I, I wondered if were intentional. So, I mean, mm-hmm. then there's these two aliens specifically they speak to whom they name Abbott and Costello. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them seems to die in the process of uh, them trying to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, so basically once that all these nations have decided that they're, they're hostile, they try to you know, sneak a, a bomb <laughs> into the ship. And uh, you know, when the last few minutes before it goes off, um, uh, Jeremy Renner's character and uh, um, Amy Adams' character go in to sort of talk to them. And the aliens know that what's going to happen. They know that this bomb is there, and they, but it seems that one of them actually dies in the process, so he still goes through with it. So there, there is maybe a sort of a, a suggestion of maybe like God the Father and God the Son, that they yeah. sort of, but you know, there's this mm-hmm. risk that's taken, they know what's going to happen, but they feel that it's for this greater purpose, right? and so they go through with it. Um, there's a, I think there's a number of places where I wondered if... And you know maybe it's just one of those archetypes that shows up, but I did wonder if there were there were certain allusions to Christian ideas or themes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, like for example, um, like I said, the notion of sort of arriving with these good intentions of, of love but being attacked anyway. Um, it kind of made me think of a there's a Twilight Zone episode called The Gift, where this alien comes with this cure for cancer, 
uh, and um, you know he's treated with suspicion. He's like in the small Mexican village or whatever, and they kill him. And I think they specifically make a Christ illusion there. Um, but th- there's other things I think that um, come out. So, for example, this notion of twelve that comes up mm-hmm. in, in various places in the film. There are these twelve pods, which sort of have the suggestion of like the twelve apostles, yeah. these messengers. Um, and I think there's at one point after they talk about the fact there being twelve pods, they mention these uh, these cultists that you know killed themselves yeah. or whatever, and they mention there's 144 of them, so that's twelve by twelve. Yeah, and so I wonder if that I wonder if this notion of twelve is was supposed to mean something specific or yeah I don't know I don't know Denis Villeneuve's background I know it's uh he changed the number of pods for this film oh compared okay. to based the, on the short story right? yeah and I, the story I I, I want to say there was twenty something in the story okay uh but I know he lowered the number specifically for the film and I don't he never really stated why I yeah. just know he did um I didn't I have not read the original short story and uh, I do know that the uh, the original short story is a, uh, has a lot of universalist uh, pushing and uh, one world government themes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And uh, it's not like the author had any necessary Christian intentions, but I I think it's really fascinating, specifically to find ties to Christianity in things that are not necessarily Christian, mm-hmm. because it shows that, you know God's voice is echoing throughout humanity. Sure. Well, yeah, it, it either points to an unintentional. Uh, you know, this sort of notion that of common grace or, or um, you know, natural revelation that we have an awareness of God, whether whether we consciously right. know it or not. Or, or it's possible that there's just simply, you know, I think there's still people who are literate, <laughs> who are aware of, of, of Scripture and the themes that are there. Mm-hmm. I think there's less and less of them. But I, I, I've seen certain films, I think specifically in a lot of the, the more recent Batman films, I think there's there's all these... I think they're very literate films. Mm-hmm. There's there's um, an awareness of uh, you know the Bible of, of Western culture and civilization. Uh, I think Dark Knight Rises in particular has this sort of like French Revolution uh, themes and ties together, mm-hmm. bringing it into Occupy Wall Street and um, and so I'm still seeing where I think there's some folks who who are aware of these themes and, and feel like there's at least. Um, some fodder there, something that you can you can use um, to tell a story, right? Whether they are necessarily Christian or not, but but oh, but yeah, but I, I but I think we're kind of the one world government thing that you talked about. There's there's hints of it in this film that of trying to kind of overcome our suspicion and work together, and I think what happens in a lot of these sci-fi things, uh, you know, films and books and, and, and TV shows or whatever. There is this notion of suspicion versus trust, and that we need to be willing to trust each other, um, which I think can be naive. Not that the suspicion approach is any better, but we do have this very difficult, you know, sort of rock and hard place situation where we're aware that humans or life forms perhaps can be good, but we also are aware of that hostility because it exists in us. And how do you balance suspicion versus trust? You know, do I do, you know, should I? Um, you know, let my child go out of my sight when we're at the mall when she's four years old. You know, do I trust people enough to say, you know, she'll be fine? You know, no, I don't. <laughs> but but so so I'm glad. I'm glad yeah, to hear yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I I think that there is this complicated relationship that we have with other human beings, other life forms, or whatever. And it's not you know enti- it's not entirely paranoid. I mean, there there's something yeah. to it. Um, and so. I, I understand this notion of okay, what are they here for? What are they doing? And how far do you extend, um, you know, your willingness to trust and be charitable when there could be genuine danger? And I, I think that 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 is. I don't think this film goes too overboard 
in like you know criticizing that paranoia. But I feel like in some some sci-fi films they tend to you know well if we just you know trusted the Russians we could all work together and you know <laughs> especially the, you know the, the Cold War type you right. know, stuff. I, I love going back to the the line specifically. Um, the the aliens ask what you know she asks the aliens what is your purpose on Earth, mm-hmm. and I I like to think about that I was like you know the aliens are really here asking us what is our purpose on Earth they're giving us the weapon and they're teaching us how to you know look into the, the future and, and the, the, the past at the same the, time the weapon is that that's a controversial you know, so yeah they, yeah they misunderstand yeah whether it's a weapon or a tool but yeah, it's understood yeah. to be a weapon right yeah so they uh, you know they their word for it was weapon but it's a tool you know mm-hmm. a tool and weapon are the same they don't know the difference so you know they're they're here to give us their you know their language and teach us what our purpose is but we're concerned about what their purpose is you know they're they're beyond us you know at this point yeah no and, and so there's that idea too that the gift is the language itself that somehow will benefit from being able to see the past present and future and right. um, not experiencing time in a linear fashion i think it's fair to ask whether that's a gift <laughs> yeah, um, it seems more like a burden, you know. You think about how it overwhelms Louise. You think about how God looks at us, and he looks at the choices we're going to make and just shakes his head like idiots. <laughs> you know? well, 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 specifically what comes out is this notion of determinism. Um, she, you know, she's... <laughs> the big spoiler is that um, the movie starts where you're aware that she has this child, and yep. the child dies of this rare disease. And then as the film goes on, you become aware that this child doesn't die before the events of the aliens coming. But it's flash forwards, it's not flash It's backs, after. Yeah. But she knows before she has this child, because she's given this gift of seeing the future, that it's going. She, she's going to die somewhat young. Yeah. And she chooses it anyway. Um, and so she says, you know, there's this quotation from the film, or something she says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it and I welcome every moment of it. And so on one level I think the film can read like a Greek tragedy you know you, you know what you're going to lose but you proceed forward anyway as if you might not lose it but but she but but then it's not because she she isn't trying to fight the future she's not trying to fight her destiny she's embracing it and and that might be the most pro-life statement I've ever heard from a Hollywood film right there oh that's pretty interesting I mean really you think about it in a in a way it's like you're you're talking about you know this is Hollywood the world of liberal procrastivism and, um, you know, and that is the most pro, pro-life pro uh, statement I've ever heard. You know, you know she, knows, she knows this person's not going to have the greatest quality of life, this child that she creates, and she chooses life anyway. She chooses to love this, per, you know, this child, and this child, you know, love her back, this reciprocating relationship, you know, this motherhood. And, you know, and, and then the, the biggest, saddest part of it all is that Jeremy Renner's character leaves her after he finds out that she knew that this child would die. Mm-hmm. He abandons her says she made the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. She made, And I, I actually made a note about that specifically. You know, I, I, it looks, you know, I love how it, you know, kind of replicates how God chooses to love us despite our actions, you know, that we fail, that we die, and that he could prevent our pain, but it would also prevent us life mm-hmm. and joy and, you know, that reciprocating relationship. And... You know, we, we tend to think about how somebody can suffer, but how, you know, how much joy and love and life are they going to feel, too? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a notion that life is itself a good. Yeah. Yeah, which I think we, we, we tend to question in the West at this yeah. stage. Yeah, we really do. Um, but but, but I, I do think, though, the kind of determinism that one accepts, 
I think ought to affect how how one views life and its purpose and and those kinds of things. So like you know if one believed that God determined the future, whether in whole like a, a Calvinist perspective or in part mm-hmm. like an Arminian perspective. Um, then someone who believes that they might find comfort in knowing that they're in good hands despite life's heartaches. Um, you know, but 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 if the future is determined merely by material causes that one has no chance of affecting, which will result necessarily in one's utter annihilation, then I think that there's good reason, if you believe that, to live without hope. Um, or you could simply just have the determination to enjoy what you can, eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Uh, Thanks, Dave. <laughs> um, <laughs> That was a Dave Matthews reference, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, in, in a materialistic universe, um, there is this notion that everything is, is, is predetermined by, um, you know, material causes, that, including every choice that we make, that there is no such thing as free choice on an atheistic, mm-hmm. materialistic you know, universe. Um, it kind of goes back to, like, Laplace's notion that um, if, you were, if you had an omniscient observer, somebody who could see every particle in the universe was and the velocity and the direction it was heading, uh, he would know everything that had happened before and everything that would happen later. And um, so in, in that perspective, there's there's really no notion of free will. And I think maybe um, the film is suggesting a kind of like compatibilism, this mm-hmm. notion that you can have free you can have free will and determinism on the basis that well, you still do what you want to do, even though you can't actually make a choice. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. Which I don't think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think you know, um, I, Kant referred to compatibilism as the, the wretched subterfuge. <laughs> right. Um, well, I think of the the line specifically when um, she and uh, Louise and you know um, Ian are, you know, after all of it's said and done, the pods have disintegrated, and she asks him, you know, if you could see your life, you know. If you could see all of your life at once, would you do anything over again? Mm-hmm. You know, if you could see it from beginning to end, is there anything you would, you know, change? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he doesn't really have a, a real answer to that. I question. think he's, he says something like, "Maybe I would, um, I would say what I was feeling more." Yeah, I was, I was saying what I was feeling more, and I was like, I think they missed a real moment there to really, you know, uh, you know, say what I was feeling more. That's that's your only regret. Um, you know. Would but that's the real question for the audience. Uh, would you? Mm-hmm. Would you? Would you, Cody? Would you change your? Would you change anything if you could see your life from beginning to end? Oh, I'm sure I would. But 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 the question is, would I actually have the ability to do it? Right. And and, and, and I think that it's not entirely clear to me, but it seems to me that the film is saying you don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the past, present, future exist. I mean, she can't. I mean, it, it it seems like what her choice to do is. Is she doesn't make a choice to, you know, do X or Y, but to simply enjoy what she's going to know she's going to do anyway. Yeah, that, I mean, that, and that's that's kind of what I picked up on it from uh, from it as well. She's going to do what she enjoys anyway. You know, she's going to enjoy what she's going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I look at it as you know, yeah, it's not saying we have a choice because if you look at it, you know. When she goes forward, and it was, was the Japanese prime or the the Chinese prime minister mm-hmm. or uh, the ambassador, or it was, whoever it was specifically. It wasn't the emperor. Uh, it was one of the high leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she says to him, you know, you know, oh, you know, or he says, you called me on my private number. So, so yeah, he talks about how yeah. the, what what when 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 the, so that all these governments of the world started led by the Chinese are going yeah. to attack the ships. 
and he meets her months after everything clears up yeah. and says, well, what happened that day was you when you called me, you changed my mind. And you called me on my private number. Yeah, and you said, you know, well, you said my wife's dying words to me. And to me, you know, he looks at her and he knows exactly what he has to say to her because he, he uh, she says, I don't, you know, I had your private number. She's like, I don't have your private number. And he shows it to her. So, to me, that's the biggest, and this is something I missed on my first watch through and I caught on my second watch through, it's really pushing the fact that there isn't a choice. Yeah. He knew exactly what she needed to know, because he understood her language, the language now, too. Mm-hmm. So, he knew that she had to see that information for time to happen the way it does. Yeah, and I, I did wonder, I'm still thinking about this, whether or not that's coherent or not. Because, because it, 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 it's it, hard to wrap around. Yeah, I mean, even if you view time as cyclical, there are still logical causes and effects, yeah. right? And so, what was the cause of the Chinese government deciding not to attack the ships? Well, the, the cause was her calling, mm-hmm. and what was the cause of that? Well, the cause of that was him giving her the number, but he couldn't have given her the number unless they all survived and didn't attack the ships. I mean, I, I don't, so right. there, there's something I think somewhat questionable about whether that's coherent. Maybe maybe I'm... Unless there's some... For some reason she can... And this is... I mean, I have no idea because it doesn't necessarily explain it in this film, but if she can see into different timelines of her decisions... Oh, possible timelines? Yeah, possible timelines. I, like, I don't think there's any notion... I don't know. I don't see any notion of possible. It, I think it doesn't it's all, say that, yeah. but that that's really the only way that I can kind of make coherent sense of it is that she can see possible timelines and then make choices. Yeah. But... I, it doesn't really make that clear, and so I would I would lean towards no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think about, like, you know, when I think of, like, time travel movies, I think of, like, you know, Back to the Future mm-hmm. and Bill and Ted's Excellent uh, Adventure, and I think I mean, Back to the Future is completely incoherent and makes no sense. But I think Bill and Ted's um, Excellent Adventure makes actually a great deal of sense in a lot of ways. Um, but the one thing you that's maybe sort of similar is, um, so at one point they're, they're sort of stuck in jail, and um, earlier in the film, you remember that, so I think it's either Bill or Ted's dad, one of them's a cop, and uh, so they're in their dad, stuck in one of them's dad's you know, jail cell. And in the beginning of the film, the dad is saying, oh, I can't find my keys. And then uh, when they're in the jail cell, like, how are we going to get out of this? And he says, oh, you know what? I'm going to hide the keys over here. I'm going to go back in time, and I'm going to hide the keys in this corner, of the, my dad's keys in this corner of the jail cell. <laughs> so when we get out of here, I'm going to go do that. Um, and so then he turns goes to the court of the jail cell and there are the keys and he gets himself out. And so there's sort of a similar loop there. Um, and I was trying to figure out if that loop makes more sense or not. Is that, that are, are either of that them loop coherent? Actually, I don't know. I think that loop does make more sense to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That, I think that definitely makes a little more sense because with him anticipating, like there's too much to fill in with, uh, this, uh, Chinese general or whatever. Um, you know, knowing what he needed to show her specifically in that moment in the future. Yeah. You know. Because he doesn't go back in time and do it. But right. I guess he does in a way because he communicates it to her and she sees it at another point in time. Yeah. So I, 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 I guess what you have to be aware of is, is that time is static. So in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, there's an eff- you can actually affect it in some ways. Right. So you can create a loop. Um, but is that... But in, in this... In, 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 in Arrival... Time is static, so everything kind of exists as it is. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it that suggests a plan. I feel right. like there's some superintendence that would allow that to happen. Um, it's never explicitly stated or anything that there's this idea of God, but you do wonder if, if, if 
Well, and then it comes down to, well, the aliens specifically, they say they need help in 3,000 years. They uh-huh. need help from humanity in 3,000 years. They can see that far ahead, but there's nothing they can do about the help. You know, there's nothing they can do themselves to change it, but they need the help from humanity. So it's in a similar way, she's doing exactly with the Chinese general what they are doing with her. Mm-hmm. You know, she uh, she goes forward and gets the help from him. Yeah. And they're going, they're going here to get help for the future because they know she's the key to, you know, helping them 3,000 years from now. But I think there's this question of what is it that actually determines our actions? Because if, if, if they know that, you know, it's set in stone, what is it that has determined it? Is it simply material? Is it atoms being around? Is it God's plan? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Yeah, is it destiny? <laughs> See, I, I kind of took that the theme, you know, what Denis with Web was trying to give us was destiny. Um, that it's determined, um, and that—that's kind of what I picked up from it. But I—I I don't know if it goes much deeper than that, to be honest, because I—I I really think he's pushing that it, everything's are predetermined, and that we're just going to enjoy—we have to enjoy the punches as they come. Yeah, but 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 you know? but but is that is that kind of like atheistic pseudo optimism, or is that like God's plan? I have no idea. <laughs> well, but, but maybe speaking to a, a theme that I think is more explicitly stated, um, this idea that it's actually a gift, that, that we'd be better off knowing that we had no freedom of choice but seeing the future, past, and present anyway. Is that actually the case? So let, let's say that, um, that we do not, we actually have no choices, right? Right. And um, so is it better if we know that we have no free choice or is it better if we think we do have free choice and that our choices matter and have significance? Would I'm, we be better people? Would we be happier? I think we're we as humanity would definitely be better people if we uh, thought we at least thought we had free choice. Yeah, you know, because I think we're going to do more good. Yeah, you know, uh, if if everything's predetermined, that's a pretty bleak humanity. I think so. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, you know, a more like Augustinian or Calvinist notion of it, at least in that per- perspective, there's there's God. There's a purpose that we can get behind. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in an atheist universe, it is bleak. And mm-hmm. I, I don't see how you can find any joy in that. And I think that goes back to this fundamental problem with atheism uh, is that there's this sort of assumption that like, oh, well, you know, we, we you know, um, <laughs> we, we're, we're willing to believe what's true, even if it's bleak and aren't we brave and aren't we wonderful. But the ultimate reality is that we would be better and happier people as a whole, as a species, if we believed false things. I think there. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, does that come down to the ignorance is bliss, or uh, kind of? I mean, yeah, so I mean, it, it, I think if atheist materialism is true, it would be a terrible thing if everybody believed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, does that make does that sound right? Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I, it would be quite sad. It'd be a very unromantic world. Yeah, which which I think ultimately means in atheist materialism, truth isn't really a value. It's only a value insofar as it contributes to some other goal that we subjectively create such as human flourishing right. or whatever so i think that's a problem yeah and, and so so I, I do wonder this notion that you know it would be a gift to see your fate I, I question that i mean the one thing i guess it is positive is there is something about like her knowing how much time she has with her daughter so that she actually seeks to get every get joy out of every moment of it. And th- there's something like that, right? You know, you're, you're going to lose a loved one because they have this terrible disease and they have six months to live or whatever, so you find joy in those moments. I see that, but I don't see much mm-hmm. else 
as far as a benefit. Yeah, I I think it works in the story for Louise specifically because I think Louise is maybe the only character in the story who knows how to understand it and use it responsibly. Yeah. And that's, you know, a whole race, you know, her teaching a whole race to understand this language, I don't think advances society. In fact, I think it, you know, makes a bleak society. Sure. Well, well so, so for example, her husband leaving her, mm-hmm. she knows that he's going to do it. She knows that their time is limited. But it ends, you know, not like with the way her daughter, you know, her daughter dies. But but it ends with her husband in almost like a betrayal in a way. Yeah. You know, he, he, he stops feeling for her he's angry with her he doesn't want to be with her anymore and yet she still goes through all yeah. the motions well, and she still tells him that her, their daughter's gonna die well the, well there's, you know? but there's not but I, but I think also could you really find all this joy in a marriage that you knew for certain was going to end with your husband leaving you yeah <laughs> I mean yeah, honestly yeah. can you I don't know no, I could not <laughs> I don't think I could. I would if I knew it was not going to work out. I just I would not have gotten married. <laughs> yeah, but she's like, oh, you know, she says something. Like but that's eight, because I'm yeah. human, and there is there is an aspect of selfishness in there with humanity, and you know, inherent selfishness that you don't want to inflict pain on yourself. It's like you know the oven's hot, you don't touch it. Yeah, you know, if you know the oven's hot, you don't touch it. And that's I think that's the hardest and most human part of her decision to go ahead and have her daughter, anyways, because. She felt like the love for her daughter and the reciprocating love back and forth was outweighed, you know, her marriage and outweighed the death and the the hardness of the loss. Yeah. Because, and and that's one of the things that, that is the only, like, you know, beacon of hope I find in that, you know, thought process is that, you know, you can still see the love shining through it, you know, shining through the bleakest of situations. And that to me, that is a, that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. specifically. Yeah, well, I think that they're, they're, you know, to maybe dial back a little bit on what I was saying, I mean, there is this notion that, um, you know, God loves us enough to, um, you know, put himself out there to risk this pain. Um, but I think, well, I guess the example I was going to use doesn't work if you're a Calvinist. It only works if you're an Arminian, <laughs> which is this notion that, you know, God might enter into a relationship with you that you would later reject. And so God, that doesn't mean God is any less um, present or that he's any, his grace is any less there, that, that your relationship with him is any less real. Um, um, but I guess on a Calvinist perspective, there's the elect and there's the non-elect and there you go. <laughs> but but it, I guess I would say maybe there, there's something in maybe what's, what happens with Luis and her husband that is a little bit like how an Arminian, someone who believes in free will, um, that God has chosen who's going to be saved and is going to damn everybody else. Right. Um, there is a parallel there to that Arminian view of God, um, that you know God might um, choose to be in this relationship, knowing where it's going to go, and be no less sincere. Right. So there's some. I guess that I could, maybe maybe to dial back a little bit on my criticism there. Maybe maybe I'm just maybe my, my maybe I don't have enough grace to appreciate <laughs> what Luis is doing there. No, I I, I don't know. I I think uh, I think it. It's, that story definitely is going to vary for different people as far as how they perceive that part. Um, I thought it was a beautiful aspect from, especially coming from a secular, uh, you know, culture that we're in now to see somebody choosing life and love over the consequences. Um, you know, that to me that gives me a little beacon of hope that there's still some, um, 
that our culture is not entirely depraved. You know that we still are a culture that still wants to love and wants to you know choose life, no matter how far away we you know separate ourselves from it. Yeah, well, yeah, there's something I think maybe of like what's what, what ethicists distinguish between a deontological ethic and a, and a consequentialist ethic or teleological, where one side says this is good regardless of what happens. You you do X because it's the right thing to do, and who cares about the consequences? Versus, well, you know. It's only good if the consequences are good, <laughs> and you know that. So even though she knows what the consequences, the ultimate end of, of choosing to have a child and choosing to be married or whatever, she still does it because there's value in the, the thing itself, um, and that you know there's something to hold on to there. So I don't know, which which I think I think is you know ultimately a more Christian ethic, but mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's definitely there's I, I guess I guess what I where I'm pushing at the film is. Um, hey, I'm seeing a lot of uh, uh, Christian, Christian, you know, presuppositions and underpinnings here. Why don't you guys go all the way with it? Maybe that's where my criticism, my pushback is, is just saying, hey, there's a lot here. I've seen a lot of Christ here and a lot of Christ here, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that you get all the way. Right. You don't really follow necessarily everything to, to this logical conclusion. So there's mm-hmm. something missing. This sort of cafeteria-style spirituality mm-hmm. where I'd like to take what works for me and then, you know, everything else I'll sort of cast to the... Right, the swine or whatever to the dogs. <laughs> you know, we we thought about the cult and stuff that uh, you know all killed themselves when the pods came down, and uh, it brought me back to another Dave Matthews lyric because we referenced a oh. Dave Matthews lyric earlier. But uh, he asks if uh, if Martians fell from the sky, what would that do to God? Uh-huh. And it, you know, honestly, how would how would world religions react if? You know, beings that we don't understand or comprehend showed up. What would that do to our religion? Mm-hmm. You know, what would that do to uh, you know all of the faiths of the world? How open are theologians to extraterrestrial life? You know, um, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know how open they are. Uh, I know personally, I would be quite interested because the Bible really only references what's you know Earth's relevance and everything, but. Uh, I don't want to sound like a Mormon. <laughs> so, uh, no offense to any Mormons out there, Mitt Romney. <laughs> yeah, as, as far as the, the aliens thing, I mean, I guess maybe there'd be some of the same conflicts that exist over, over evolutionary theory, which is, it has to do with, I mean, evolutionary theory, I think, has made people question the significance of humans, mm-hmm. um, where we sort of exist on this continuum of life. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that would, uh, I suppose there'd be similar uh, disagreements within the church about how to look at that. I know, like, C.S. Lewis um, in his, like, Space Trilogy. Love that trilogy. Has some notions about, you know. If I could ever make a sci fi movie or direct a sci fi movie, it would be Out of the Silent Planet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a great film. But but, but in there, yeah, Earth is called the Silent Planet because it's the Mm -hmm. planet that's fallen. So Mm -hmm. every other other world that exists and it's populated. Um, and that's what I've always kind of wondered is if there was life out there and uh, not to sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist because someone's going to listen to this and I, I'm going to find trivia on my IMDB page that <laughs> I'm a conspiracy theorist or something but if uh, if there are aliens and stuff out there you know does the salvation story affect them I would I would argue no because if they're not human then no yeah that, that's tricky so I, I think um, there is this notion I think in, in you know, specifically like you see it in first Corinthians this notion, um, well, and elsewhere actually in Scripture, that what Jesus did 
affects the entire universe. Oh, really? Okay. So in some way, shape, or form, you know, we're talking, Romans talks about, you know, the, the world is groaning. and So I, I think there's this notion of sort of a cosmic effect mm-hmm. that that is of sin, so to speak, you know, and um, that Christ has kind of resolved everything. So there's this notion of um, the physical world and the spiritual world and angels and powers and principalities and, and that all of them are sort of affected by what Christ has done, that all of them will um, sort of become ordered under the headship of Christ. So, uh, you know, how exactly that would affect, uh, you know, um, outside sort of thinking life forms, it probably depends on the life form. If they come to us and they're sinners, or if they come to us and they're, they're, not, they're not affected by that, uh, they've, yeah, they're, they're... I'm fascinated. I can't wait. <laughs> um, I want to find out. Yeah. I think we'd have we'd have to deal with that. If you're listening, aliens, let us know. <laughs> what is your biblical ideology? Are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? <laughs> well, is, is is there anything else we want to say in closing? So, I mean, ultimately, like I said, this is actually I mean a really fascinating film, and it does deal with a lot of pretty pretty interesting theological and philosophical. It is topics. a lot of fun to watch. It is uh, actually one, another tidbit of uh, information about this film is the the cinematographer was the first. African American cinematographer ever be nominated for an Oscar for cinematography? Oh, wow. That is a huge deal and a huge uh, groundbreaking thing. I actually think, uh, you know, while I I was rooting for him very much, La La Land did get the cinematography Oscar, and I was quite excited about that because the colors were just phenomenal. The use of color, but um, overall, yeah, this film is just it's phenomenal. It's beautiful to look at. It's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, it'll get you talking with your family. Um, there's really nothing majorly inappropriate about it. I think there's a couple, a little bit of language here and there. Yeah. But it's a PG-13, and, you know, you don't have to worry about anything for your, the kids. Sure. Well, that, that's one thing I kind of liked, is you, we talked about, you talked about the notion of the romance, but, um, I guess it could have been explored a little bit more, but, yeah. but, but ultimately that, that is one element that comes out, is because it's, it's sort of a, a tertiary mm-hmm. story you know, you don't have the compulsory sex scene or anything like that. Yeah, it's true. And there are a lot of sci-fi films that they just throw in the sex scene just to get people in the theater. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Exploit the one thing everybody thinks about, right? Sure. Everybody's already <laughs> interested in the sex. Everybody's this, interested. And this alien has three boobs, so... Well, well yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Total Recall, was that? <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, awesome. Thank you so much, Joseph. Uh, this was sure. a fantastic conversation. It was a good film to talk about. I appreciate you suggesting. I hadn't seen it. Until uh, until uh, we prepared for this, so uh, I'm glad I had the opportunity to watch it. Absolutely, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. And oh, if anybody wants to learn more, I did mention you can find it on YouTube, Average yes, Joe. Yes, uh, if you can, Average Joe Films. Uh, watch our new series, Ground Rules for Living with Your Ex. It's a seven episode web series, uh, comedy, dramatic, a lot of fun. You can follow me on Instagram, Joseph Cox Official. Um, I'm a filmmaker, a musician, random guy, and your friend. Great. And do you have a website or anything like that? Uh, yeah, you can visit AverageJoeFilms.com if you want to see some of the stuff we're doing uh, coming up. And uh, we're working on a brand new science fiction noir drama just for you. Nice. And so, and apart from all your independent projects, you also do some freelancing stuff. Yes, so uh, we do a lot of corporate videos and uh, shoot weddings. Uh, I mostly shoot weddings for other companies just because it's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> But uh, we shoot corporate videos. Uh, we recently just did a video for Seven Star Academy, which is a uh, you know an online school, an online Christian school actually. Um, you should check them out. They're a really cool you know really cool organization. And um, but yeah, I do a lot of freelance work and uh, a lot of 
uh, corporate and Kickstarter videos and stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you.